Um, it's great to be with you again this morning. Today we, uh, to, we reached the conclusion of our Head, Hearts, Hands series. Uh, and through this series, we, we've, as you've heard me say many times, we've, we've sought to explain what it really means to be a Christian, uh, what it means to know God's truth in our heads, uh, to allow that truth, truth to captivate our emotions and our hearts, and therefore to allow that to determine our actions through our hands. And I'm tempted to ask um, if anyone can remember some of the topics uh, that we have dealt with so far. In fact, yeah, let's do that. Uh, let's, uh, any topics that you can remember. There's been nine so far, if you don't count the uh, introduction. Humanity. Humanity, thank you. Church. The church. Thank you very much, Alan, yeah. <laughs> Margaret is saying the devil. Yes, brilliant, thank you. <laughs> she did so through the one, through the, this is what she did, just so that for everyone's benefit and for the video, just to the, that. Brilliant, yeah, somehow I knew what that was, brilliant. Anything else? Thank you. Yes, God. Thanks to you. The Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. I'll bring it. Eternity. Yep. Future state. Uh, uh, is, yes, was last week with Michael. Here we go. Here's the list. The Scriptures was our first week. Well, our second week. Uh, God. Where we looked at the Trinity, um, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the devil, humanity, justification, the church, the future state, and today we're going to finish with Christian behavior. And you can see that this has been a, a wide-ranging series as we've looked at a lot of different topics over these weeks since September. Uh, and today we conclude with this session on, the, on Christian behavior. What does it mean to actually follow Jesus? Now, that doesn't mean that the weeks up to now have not been about what it means to follow Jesus. Um, but we'll look at some specifics today. And actually to help us, uh, I'm going to reinforce something that we looked at right back in our first week, and that was James 1.22. We looked at this in our introductory session. In James 1.22 we read, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Uh, and you see, as we consider the life of the Christian today, in essence we're, we're summing up this whole series and everything that we've seen and the importance of putting our head knowledge and our heart feeling into hand practice, we're summing that all up today. Because the list of the topics that we've been looking at over these weeks, they only really have value if we allow God to do his work in us and transform our lives so that we put his word into practice. You see, that we need to be doers of the word. That's what James tells us. We'll look at a minute in Jesus' words where he tells us that we need to hear and do. You see, the Christian faith is not a stagnant faith. This is not some theoretical intellectual exercise that we engage with. No, the very nature of Christianity is about a, a lived out, life transformed reality. And so Jesus' words at the end of Matthew 7, when he's concluding the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, incredibly intensely practical uh, teaching about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And Jesus finishes with these words from Matthew 7, 24 to 28. Uh, I'll just read down to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus is saying to his hearers then and says to us now, hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice. 
And when we do, when our faith is like that, when we hear and do, then the rains and floods and storms that will come, those rains and floods and storms, they hit both houses. The rains and floods and storms will come, but if we hear and do, our house is built on the rock of Jesus' teaching, and therefore our life of faith will not fall. However, simply hearing the words of Jesus and not putting them into practice is, as James said, reiterated in words we've just read, it is deceiving ourselves. That our faith may look impressive, the house might still look grand and wonderful, but it's built on sand if we're not hearing and doing. If we merely hear, then when the floods and storms and rains of life come, then our faith will not stand. We need to hear and do. And that is what it means to build our house on the rock. That we hear Jesus' words, we put it into practice, and therefore that is the man who built his house on the rock. And when the rains and storms and floods came, it beat against that house, but it did not fall. And so if we want to be genuine disciples of Jesus Christ, we've got to hear and do. We've got to know his truth and allow that truth to transform our very lives. And so in light of the teaching that we've had through this series on all of these topics, the scriptures, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the devil, humanity, justification, the church, the future state and all eternity, if we, we are to live in the light of all of that truth. We're to do the word that we've been engaging with over these weeks. And today we're going to consider what that life of doing then looks like and what it looks like as individuals, what it looks like actually as a local congregation here too. Uh, and as you may know, we've been using our, our doctrinal statement as a framework for this series, and it helpfully summarizes our, our topic for this morning. This is what our, our doctrinal statement says. The responsibility of all believers to obey and serve the Lord and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. It goes on to say the duty of each church to exercise godly discipline in a loving and caring fashion. And you can see how this statement, and remember we're not, this series has not been an in-depth study of our doctrinal statement. This series has been an in-depth study of God's word, which is the basis for our doctrinal statement. But you can see how this statement brings out two areas of importance when it comes to Christian living. It brings out the individual responsibility of all of us. And then the responsibility we have collectively as his church. And both of those things are biblical. We'll see both of them as we go through this morning. So let's turn to God's authoritative word, see what he has to teach us this morning. And, and to help us, I'd like to explore just a number of occasions throughout, particularly the New Testament, where we see an instruction about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to live as a Christian. Uh, I may not make a lot of comment on each one of these, but it is worth noting just the vast amount of content which God has given us in his word to show us how he would have us live our lives. It's, it's clear that God has a high priority on his people knowing and understanding what it means to follow him. And, and not just on that theoretical level, but on a very practical daily level. Here's what it means to follow God. He has told us and instructed us in his word. And not only that, he hasn't just made his expectations known. But he's also given us incredible resources to be able to live those teachings out, to both hear and do. He's given us wonderful things that we'll speak of as we go through this morning, as we seek to serve and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's dive into God's word and, and look at some passages throughout the New Testament where God speaks to us about what our lives should look like. 
uh, as we follow him, as we make that commitment to following him, of that commitment to pursue holiness in our every life, everyday life. Um, firstly, let me just clarify that at, at, um, as we turn to Matthew 28, um, just this, the importance of obeying, uh, just to clarify this. So Matthew 28, we have Jesus uh, speaking to his disciples uh, not long before he has ascended into heaven. He has died, he has risen, he is speaking with his apostles. And he says to them on the mountainside in Galilee, in Matthew 28, 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice that that the teaching that is to be passed on to those who would become disciples is to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Disciples of Jesus are to obey his teaching. Uh, And as we looked at when we studied the church and we saw in Acts 2 that this was clearly something that the early apostles took. When the first church gathered at the end of Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so teaching is key if we're going to obey. Followers of Jesus are to do exactly that. They are to follow Jesus. And that means knowing the paths he would have us to walk, knowing the way that he would have us live our lives, keeping in step with him and his teaching, we obey. And that's the first description that's used in our doctrinal statement, that believers would obey and serve the Lord, that we have a responsibility to obey. Indeed, I would go further to say, biblically, we are commanded to obey. That's part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. We obey. Uh, And we can only obey if we know his word. We can only obey that which we know. And he has made it so plain for us in his word. And so if we're wanting to live lives faithfully and obediently following him, then we have to know the ways in which he would have us walk. And he's revealed that to us in his word. Um, The the second phrase in the doctrinal statement uh, is to obey and serve. The believers are to obey and serve the Lord. And this idea picks up on something we talked about in life groups a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when we consider the topic of humility. Uh, And humility and service, these aren't necessarily very popular or very exciting words, certainly not in our culture today, but they are fundamental when it comes to following Jesus. We are to be humble, we are to serve. You see, to, to follow Jesus, we first need to accept our weakness and our vulnerability. Uh, we need to take on that position of humility. We need to see that that we need him, that in our own strength and and in our own power, we can't in any way deal with our own sin. We can't restore our relationship with God, which has been broken by that sin. No, we need the help of another. We need the help that comes from outside of us. And graciously and miraculously and wondrously, God has provided that help in Jesus. That, that, That salvation, all that we need for salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And so to accept his forgiveness, we have to humble ourselves. And so the Christian life begins in humility and continues in humility, serving God and serving others. And so when we come to him, we humble ourselves, we repent of our sin, we grasp hold of his loving hand and his saving grace, and we surrender our lives to him. We offer ourselves to his service. And so in humility, we surrender our lives. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord of our lives. 
We often use that phrase that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. He has rescued us from our sin. And so then we offer ourselves to him completely. We see this really clearly in Romans 12. In the first couple of verses of Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And so if we just highlight a couple of phrases from these verses, we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, we give our whole selves to Jesus as an act of worship. And and what is worship? Well, well, worship is declaring that something has worth or value. And so we proclaim how worthy Jesus is with our whole lives. It's every part of our life. We don't just pay lip service to him. We don't just give him an occasional snippet of praise. No, we offer our whole selves to him as a sacrifice of worship. Our, our physical bodies are given to him to say, Lord, do what you would have me do. Let me follow your way. Go where you send me. Our priorities, our time, our money, our careers, our families, we, we give everything to God and say, Lord, in view of your mercy, I offer all of myself to you. And that's an important phrase, isn't it? In view of God's mercy. That phrase that comes before the offering. I think sometimes we look at the offering too quickly and say, okay, well, I've got to work hard. I've got to earn this from God. No, it's in view of your mercy, God, take my life. In view of what you have already done, then what other option is there but to give myself to you? You have given everything for me. So what option have I have but not to give everything to you in submission and service? Uh, and so I know we've stressed this point many times before. I don't think we can ever overemphasize the need to understand that the reality of the Christian life is a distinctive pursuit of holiness. Yes, absolutely. And that is as a result of the mercy and grace of God. It's, it's an overflow of gratitude and surrender that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Christian obedience should, should never be the overflow of a, of a begrudging spirit of, okay, God, I'll give you that bit of me. It should never be a, a, an offering to say, okay, God, look at how good I'm trying to be. I'm, I'm worthy of the grace and the mercy that you've given. No, in view of your mercy, you've already given it to me, God, so have my life. It's in view of his mercy, the mercy which has graciously been poured out on us Already, before we've done anything, he has given us mercy. And so when we come to him in repentance and faith, we give ourselves to him and say, have your way. That is our true and proper worship. And then the Apostle Paul goes on in these verses to to show us what this life of service might involve. You see the start of verse 2. Do not conform yourself, sorry, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so this life of service, which of course is a life of obedience, the two go hand in hand. This life means that the Christian has a different set of values, a different set of priorities to the world around. Our our minds are renewed by the Spirit of God at work in us. And with a renewed mind, our life is transformed. And that transformed life stands distinctively against the pattern of the world. And so we are living in, we are living for or we certainly we seek to 
live in and live for the will of God. And that may well put us at odds with the world around us. I've just finished listening to, I was going to say reading, but I've cheated and listened to the audiobook um, of Alistair Begg's little book called Brave by Faith. And it's a wonderful encouragement to our hearts where he looks at the story of Daniel uh, and Daniel and his friends who were in an environment that was completely counter to their following of God. And yet they stood firm. They stood firm with grace. They stood firm with, 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 uh, with care, but they stood firm. And I think for, for many of us, as we look around our world, we see the, uh, the world is a changing, as someone has famously said. But that doesn't mean that we change with it. It certainly doesn't mean that the biblical teaching that we believe and that is eternal changes with our times. Now, what it does mean is that if we faithfully and obediently live this life of obedience and service to our Lord, then we may stand distinctive from the world around us. And as we looked at in our series in 1 Peter, our role is to stand firm, to know God's truth, to allow that truth to captivate our hearts, and therefore to let that truth determine our actions. I think as a society, we, we, we may look around, and Alistair Begg brings this out in his book, that we may look around and think that, that we as, as Christians are beginning to be marginalized in society. Uh, life as a Christian may be harder now than other generations before. I'm not sure. I didn't live then. Uh, but the reality is that we're not promised an easy life. In fact, certainly as we look through the early church, they lived this faithful, obedient life of service and it got them into bother with, with many who opposed them, who stood for different things, yet they stood firm. And they stood firm with grace, with mercy, holding on to truth. Over Advent, we'll be looking at John 1 and we're going to be seeing that, that God sent Jesus and he came full of grace and truth. I think sometimes we want to choose one or the other. That either in this situation, in this work context, when I'm being bombarded by people who disagree with me or who assume things about me because I say I'm a Christian, I have to respond either with grace or with truth. Well, Jesus came full of both. And as his followers, somehow we have to do the same, empowered by his spirit, grounded in his word. And so this, this transformed life may make us stand out, may make us look different, um, but it's supposed to. We are transformed by the Spirit of God. This is the, the eternal, majestic creator God who made everything. Out of nothing, made everything. And so as we follow him, as he indwells us, then our lives are transformed. I want to look at just one example, and there's plenty, but let's look at one example from the New Testament letter to the Colossians where we see this transformation so clearly at play. Again, I'm not going to make a lot of comment on this, but just enjoy the, the, the reality of what it means to follow Jesus, to obey and to serve, as we see in these words. I'm going to read just uh, verse 1 down to verse 14. Um, and as we do, watch out for that transformation that takes place, but also don't miss the glorious motivation that we see in verse 12 for this transformation. So Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the, your earthly nature, 
sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all and is Christ is all and is in all. Verse twelve Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Can you, can you see the transformation that takes place in the life of the believer? We put off our old self. We put on the new. I don't know if you were here uh, a number of months ago when we looked at uh, a series called Changing Rooms, where we spent the whole uh, whack of time, I can't remember how long it was, in Colossians 3. And looked at the transformation that the Spirit brings about in us. And remember, did you catch that in verse 12? That's the motivation. That therefore, as God's holy people, chosen and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion. Again, we're back to Romans 12, aren't we? In view of his mercy, then your life is transformed. Because In Colossians 3, it's because God loves you, you are holy and dearly loved, then clothe yourself with his grace and mercy and wonderful character. See, we, we, are, we are changed and transformed because of what God has done, because of his spirit within us. And so our heads, our hearts, our hands are transformed. It, it's, not, it's not about us. It's not about our effort. Now, yes, it is about our dedication. It is our responsibility. It's about how we spend our time. It's about how open we are to God's work in our lives. Yes, we have a a part to play in this, but the transforming power is God's. And so this is what it means to live a Christian life, to be transformed by God's truth, to be renewed by his spirit, and therefore to follow in his way. Lives that are transformed by his love, by his grace, and therefore lives that speak of and show his love and his grace. So as Christians, we seek to obey the teaching of the Bible. We seek to serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, and we do that because our lives are being transformed by him and his work in our hearts. And there's much more that could or maybe even should be said in this regard. So we could look at Galatians 5. Uh, as we did when we, we, we studied the Holy Spirit and we saw the fruit of the Spirit and we could in- examine that the God, the God's work in our lives produces these wonderful things of love, joy, peace, for, well, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these wonderful fruit that is at work in our life when we surrender to the Holy Spirit. We could consider the teaching of James 1 and, and wrestle more with what it means to put our faith into action. We could enjoy more of Ephesians 2 or Titus 3, which show us uh, the wonderful effect of God's loving kindness on us. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved, and so on and so on. We could enjoy all of this wonderful teaching. And I encourage you to. That's that's my takeaway for this morning, that, that go and dive into the Word of God. 
If you're a Christian this morning struggling with this, struggling with what it means to live faithfully, to obey and to serve, then spend some time in his word. See what he's saying. See how he directs our hearts. Thank goodness, don't we all need that? See, it's one thing to to know that we are to obey and serve, but to do that we need to know the teaching of Scripture in order to obey it. We need to know our Lord in order to serve him well so that we know what he would have us do. And so let's, let's soak ourselves in his word. Let's be obedient and open to the promptings of the Spirit and, and walk where he leads and he guides us. In other words, let's be people who hear God's word and put it into practice. Let's be people who hear and do, people who follow with our heads, our hearts, and our hands. I mentioned, just in case you thought that was the end, I mentioned that um, God not only shows us his expectation and, and, and his instruction as to what a Christian life looks like, he also demonstrates for us some of the resources that he gives. We've mentioned two of them already, his word and his spirit, that we are transformed by his word, his truth, and that we are indwelt by his spirit, and it's the spirit's fruit that is at work within our hearts. And the last thing that I want to mention in terms of resources that God gives us is, a, is one another. He gives us his church. And I know we celebrated this a few weeks ago, but um, our, our, our doctrinal statement reads this. I don't know whether you picked this up when we read it the first time. That the responsibility, Christian living is the responsibility of all believers to obey and serve the Lord and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And then it goes on to say, the duty of each church to exercise godly discipline in a loving and caring fashion. You see, we are to encourage one another. God has given us one another to help us along this path. We've talked about these verses many times before, but think of Hebrews 10:24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Proverbs 27:17. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Or First Thessalonians 4, 1 just says, as, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, notice Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica. We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are doing. Paul's commending them, saying, brilliant, you are doing this. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And so we're to encourage one another, spur one another on. The point is clear, isn't it? That what it means to be part of God's church is that we long to see one another grow in our maturity in our spiritual lives with Jesus. And alongside the many ways in which we positively, in a sense, build into, encourage all those positive things that we want to see growth in, it's also the responsibility that we have of one another and for one another uh, to lovingly and graciously point out areas of sin and disobedience that we see in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Now I realize that many of us may have just got uncomfortable. Uh, I realize as well that that can be done in a way that is harsh and unhelpful, I would say unbiblical at times. It has the potential to cause real problems and pain if we don't follow the biblical pattern of how to do this well. But if we do follow the biblical pattern of seeking to restore our brothers and sisters, then it can bring real life and spiritual fervor and health into the life of our congregation. If I could look, for example, at, at uh, Galatians 6, just one, the first verse of Galatians 6. Having just talked about f- the fruit of the Spirit and life in the Spirit, then Ephesians 6 starts, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, 
or you also may be tempted. See, there's a, there's a pattern uh, for those who are mature in the faith, getting alongside someone who might be struggling in some area of their spiritual walk and seeking to restore that person gently. It's a wonderful example of God's family in action. Now, ultimately, Scripture shows us that there may be times when someone isn't restored. Maybe they're not willing to surrender that area of sin in their lives. Maybe there are persistent issues that are starting to cause a negative effect on the body that gathers. And the Bible outlines then steps that should be taken, all with the aim of restoring that person, helping them to see their error and turn in repentance to the life that the Lord would have them live. And and so we see in Matthew 18, we see again in 1 Corinthians 5, those steps that, that escalate to the point of actually asking that person to be removed from the fellowship. Uh, and that sounds harsh. We, we might think that that's incredibly uncomfortable. But it's even those steps as laid out in Scripture are to be done with love and care. Because ultimately the goal is to restore that person to truth. Restore that person to the, the way in which God would have them walk. And, and our, our spiritual health uh, it's something that we all need to consider and take seriously for one another. But the Bible is clear that there is an additional burden on those who God calls to be elders of the, his congregation. To care for and nurture the spiritual health of those who are entrusted to our care. And there's a really helpful section in First Peter 5 that outlines the right use of that level of spiritual authority. Um, because it is authority that tragically can be misused. I completely understand that. But, if, but when that level of spiritual care is modeled and, and used by elders biblically, then the fruit in the congregation should be evident. And so on behalf of your elders here, can I say that we, we long to serve you well. We, we long to see spiritual nurture and growth in all of our lives. And we long to be faithful to God's word and to increase our love of God's word in this place and in every one of our hearts. And yes, we will get things wrong, and for that we deeply apologize. But we ask you to be patient with us as we seek to to love and to lead well as God would lead us. See, as elders, we we recognize the the blessing and the responsibility of of our roles here. Um, And so we read verses like Hebrews 13, verse 17, and it sobers us. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. And so we long to see spiritual life and health and flourishing here. And so if we can serve in a way that would help that better, please let us know. And so we long to see every single one of us, including each of us as elders, flourish in our walks with the Lord, obeying him, serving him, living, as as the doctrinal statement said, self-controlled, upright lives. That's the ultimate goal of what is called church discipline. And I realize that that term invokes uh, negative connotations for us, but in the best use of it, it is a love and care and spurring one another on that we seek to do here as we all seek to live this life of Christian obedience well. And so as we finish this morning, let me, um, let's encourage one another with the life that God has called us to. Let's marvel again at his mercy. And in view of that mercy, then let's offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. 
Let's allow his spirit to transform us more and more into the likeness of his son. Let's seek to obey his word. Let's seek to know it with our heads, meditate on it. Let it shape our emotions, captivate our hearts, and then let's live his word out. Let's be hearers and doers, because when we are, then he receives glory. Our lives then shine for him, regardless of our circumstances. And sometimes those circumstances are incredibly difficult. But living the Christian life doesn't paper over those cracks and smile as if everything's okay. No, living the Christian life as a bedrock of joy, knowing that this life is not all there is, knowing that this is not our home, yet we seek to live faithful, obedient lives to him. And as we do that, then his transforming work in our lives is evident to those around us. And they see the source of our, of our unending joy and our eternal peace and our unshakable hope, and they're drawn to him. We have opportunities to share the good news of who he is. That's really what the, the Christian life is all about, isn't it? It's about him. It's about making more of him. As John the Baptist prayed, less of me and more of him. It's about using our minds and our words and our actions as he would have. And so let's seek to live those self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Not because we have the power, but because he has made it possible. He has died on the cross, taking the penalty of our sins so that we would be welcomed into a relationship with him, restored, forgiven. That charge sheet of our indebtedness would be wiped clean. And therefore, we are able to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. That he would be honored, he would be glorified, and that floods of people would come to know him through our faithful witness. May he be pleased to make it so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have indeed given us all that we need for life in you. Primarily, Father, you have given us Jesus and we praise you for his saving work on the cross. That in your mercy, you have dealt with our sin and opened the way for us to accept forgiveness, to know adoption into your family. And Lord, for those of us who are here this morning, having made that, having come to you in repentance and faith, Father, would you encourage our hearts today? Lord, we recognize that, that as we have sought to follow you over the weeks and months and years of living our faithful, our, our Christian life before you, Father, we have stumbled and fell at times. But we praise you for your grace. We praise you that your mercies are new every morning. And so would you restore us, we ask. Help us to know again the joy of our salvation. Help us to be confident in the, the Spirit's work in our lives, which brings fruit, His fruit. And Lord, as we live and as we commit ourselves to living this faithful Christian life after you, seeking you, following you, Lord, would you move in and through us? Would you draw those who we love, who don't know you yet, to yourself? And Father, we thank you that in drawing us to yourself, you have drawn us to one another and brought us into your family, the church. And so, oh God, I pray that this place would be a place of, of spurring one another, of encouraging one another, of loving one another deeply. Lord, that we would indeed uh, encourage that spiritual life and health in one another. Would you give us the humility we need to do that? Would you give us the grace we need to receive? And Lord, we pray that in all things, in everything, you would receive the glory that you so rightly deserve. 
We pray all these things, Father, in your name and for your glory. Amen.